the flesh is not really what what this whole point is. It certainly experiences pain and it experiences wealth and hunger, but it's not what this human experience is about, is this body. And if you don't know that you're a spiritual being, you are literally completely misunderstanding what is happening here on earth. Welcome to Elements of Styles, the business podcast that trades in scarce thinking for community, conversation, and ideas in abundance. Each week, I, Mark Styles, sit with professionals and entrepreneurs, both local and global, and learn how they each add value to their communities, their partners, and their teams. Please enjoy. Hey, folks, welcome back to Elements of Styles. Today, I am grateful to have a guest, different than normal. I first met Rebecca Ladd on the Dr. Joe show. We had her and a Dr. Jordan on an episode, and it moved me. And I asked her to join our show today to share her story and to share hope. So Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate it. This is a great opportunity. I really appreciate you coming and being being so willing to share your story. Can we go back to 2010 and tell us what happened? So um, in two th- first of all, I'm a mother of three children and I, you know, was an educator, an artist, a singer, lots of things in my life. And in 2010, my very depressed, but brilliant and unbelievable son um, killed himself in uh, January of 2010. And I was the person who found him. My daughter also found him because the 911 operator was asking me to do CPR, but he had killed himself. He had hung himself in our basement. And when that happened, my whole world was destroyed. I was destroyed. Everything about what I believed to be true, everything that I knew, everything I loved, everything I understood was torn to pieces. And I died when I found his dead body, I died. And I I remember saying um, what right afterwards to my family, I said, I'm not gonna let this define me. I am not gonna let this define me, but it has completely and totally defined me. It is the defining experience of my life. And I love David so passionately. I was just one of those mothers who just thought their children were the greatest thing in the whole world. And I thought David in particular, he was the beloved of my heart. And strangely enough, his name means beloved. And I was thrown into grief that can't be described. I, I, I sometimes, the, de- the description I sometimes use is that of being in an Iron Maiden. And you are trying to function in a world and you are inside an Iron Maiden, you know, impaled on spikes. And you're trying to figure out how to work and how to have coffee in the morning and how to talk to people about their Disney vacations. And you can't do any of it because you're inside an Iron Maiden being dying or really kind of dead, but you're still alive because you wake up in the morning and mysteriously you wake up in the morning, your heart is still beating and you have to wake up to this agony and you've spent the night screaming in your sleep. 
And I never seemed to get out of that. I was stuck in that. I went to support groups. I got some very bad grief counselors. And support groups are great because you get and realize get to them and realize that other people understand your experience and that you can talk freely about your experience where you can't do that with anybody else. I couldn't even tell anybody else that he had hung himself. I, you know, I just couldn't talk about it. And people don't want to hear it. They don't really want to understand in any way the agony of that experience. They just want to sort of say, oh, I'm sorry, and or say nothing worse, say nothing. So I stayed in this excruciating grief and this sort of inability to understand anybody else or function. You feel like you're on Mars and you're like observing everybody on Earth and there's too much time and space between you and you can't understand. You can't understand language. You can't understand other people's ideas. You can't read. You can't eat. Food tastes like gravel literally like gravel. I mean, not that I've eaten gravel, but I think I ate gravel for a couple of years. And it was so agonizing in every possible way, your whole body, your mind, your emotions, your everything hurts in an indescribably terrible way. And I went to some counselors and you know, one of them told me I she needed to go bowling which was uh, not the best of requests because I'm a terrible bowler. And uh, another person told me I really needed to stop grieving because David wouldn't want it. This was three years after David died. And she was horrified that I was still grieving. She was a grief counselor in theory. <laughs> um, as that, a grief counselor, she was advising you to stop grieving. She was, she was. So I would say that I, I didn't see her again. <laughs> um, it was really terribly injurious to do that to a grief, someone in grief, because then you just feel guilty and bad for doing what you can't control. Mm. So after four years, maybe three and a half years, I was looking around on the internet and I found um, a PowerPoint. I was like, people who can't get out of grief, people who won't stop grieving. And I found a PowerPoint called about complicated grief and it's no longer called that it's they call it something else and I don't know what else and I read the powerpoint and I thought this is me this is exactly me I am obsessed with the images of his death I cannot stop going down those stairs and finding him I cannot sleep I cannot eat I cannot function I cannot 24 hours a day I thought about him every second of every day I thought about him and I found this PowerPoint and I read it and I thought, I was like, oh, this is me. This is, this is me. This is what I, I didn't know such a thing existed. And I looked up the author of the PowerPoint and discovered that he was practicing outside of Boston. I live in Rhode Island. So I called him and left a message and I said, I'm Rebecca Ladd. I think I have complicated grief. My son committed suicide. I, I don't worry, you're not supposed to use the word committed any longer, killed himself. And, um, and I found out that he had actually retired to Pawtucket, Rhode Island, which was like eight minutes away from me. Hmm. And he took me on as a client and his name is Dr. John Jordan and call him Jack. And he specializes in suicide loss survivors, specifically in suicide. 
He specializes in this, what he's studied, he's done research articles, he's written books, he speaks at conferences, he's headlines conferences. He's big time in the world of su suicide loss survivors. And I found this guy right next door and he took me on as a client. And the first time I went to see him, I thought he said, one of the things he was going to help me with is he was going to help me uh, develop an ongoing relationship with David. Whereupon I thought this guy is an absolute nut because David is dead. Dead people don't have relationships. You don't talk to people. You don't have relationships with dead people. They are dead. That's the whole problem here, buddy. My kid is dead. What don't you understand? I'm having a problem because he's dead and he's not there. So I almost didn't go back. And then I went back. I talked to my grief support group and they actually, and they said, whoa, this guy sounds crazy. So, um, I, but I went back and discovered over the years, and I went to see him many, many times, that in fact, you do develop a relationship with people who are dead. We did many things, imagery, imagining David in a safe place, me learning to accept that I was a human being because I felt like I had killed him with my own hands. I had done that. As his mother, my job was to protect my children from death. And I had utterly failed in every way. I was a useless human being because I had failed my primary objective as a human being. And it was probably because of all of the crimes that I had committed over the years against him, you know, like, you know, being impatient with him or making him clean his room when he didn't want to or whatever I felt were crimes. And I, he helped me accept that I was a human being. And he helped me accept that David had chosen to kill himself, that I had not done that myself, which sounds odd unless you've had a child die when you realize that what, and your thinking is very, very magical and very confused where you believe you are responsible in every way for your child's death. Can I ask you if we could go back before we yep. dig deeper into Dr. Jordan and, and the hope that he gave, but during that grieving time, especially right after the death, what, what would benefit the griever from others, right? Because I think a lot of times we find ourselves not knowing what to say because yes. it's such an awkward and uncomfortable situation. I'm sorry for your loss. And these trite statements, you, you we care, but we don't know what to say. What, what would that griever want in that moment? Yeah, that's a great question. In reality, the only thing you do want is the words, I'm so sorry. Okay. That is, that's not trite. What is trite is to say there's a silver lining. God wants another angel. Well, at least he was in, he's in a better place. Those are the trite things you absolutely do not want to hear and are injurious. And people love those things. To say some sort of cliche is the worst thing you can do to someone. The other worst thing you can do to someone, I'm saying the worst things first, um, the other worst thing you can do is share your personal experience. Yeah. Oh God, my dog died. It was terrible. Mm. When my grandmother died, I was so sad. Or 
this was the one that really killed me. <laughs> I just got divorced and it was really painful. Uh, and I wanted to say, really, did you find your son dead in front of you and held him in your arms when he was dead? Really? Was that like your divorce? Mm. You know, you want to say something really painful and nasty and somehow you are polite and don't. But that is injurious to other, that's injurious to the griever to share your experience. Unless you have an, an identical experience, keep your mouth shut. Yeah. Unfortunately, you eat, you have to. But I'm so the, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sh showing engaging empathy that it doesn't get routine and. Never. Okay. But matter of fact, not saying I'm sorry is injurious okay. because then the person says to you as you know, what you think is that the person is too concerned with their own problems and their own life to even say the words, I'm sorry. Gotcha. Yeah. You kind of like have to say, I'm sorry, have to. And if you don't, the griever remembers like that person didn't say anything. They said nothing. How dare they say nothing when I am absorbed in this pain? So I'm sorry. And then the only thing the griever needs is someone to listen. And so you can say, how are you doing? And they can say any bizarre, weird, all sorts of things. I'm sorry. How are you doing? And just listen, 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 be there. My sister, Felicity, who needs kudos here, um, called me every single day. And she didn't say like, oh, he's in another place. She's mm -hmm. like, how are you doing back? How are you doing back? How are you doing back? And for years she called me. And to have that person who acknowledged that you were a, a you existed because you stop existing because you're absorbed with this pain and it's so all-encompassing and no one sees it. And then when no one acknowledges it, no one even says anything but just like, hey, let's look at the data from this sheet. You're like, I don't care about data from this sheet. I, nothing in me cares about data right now. Do you see that I am dying? And um, you just need to be acknowledged. You need to exist and you're not seen. So listen without giving advice. Zero advice. Mm. No fixing it. I did have some really good friends and my sister and who listened and were smart enough to realize that it was unfixable. You can't bring the person back. You can't make it, you can't undo it. I tried to undo time, believe me. I put every single effort of my being into undoing time. If anybody could have done it, I would have done it. And I couldn't undo it. So there's no fixing. It's just listening and saying, I'm sorry. So, you know, three and a half years of no hope, no understanding, where, where were the people then? Like, how did you, how did you connect with others during that period before you found Dr. Jordan? It was really difficult. Work was really impossible because in work at work, you're supposed to function and you're supposed to, you know, you're, I'm a teacher and you're supposed to be acting like a teacher, which is very difficult and all consuming. And I could do the teaching part. What I couldn't do was interact with colleagues. And I was just on a different planet than they were on. And I couldn't understand them and they couldn't understand me. And 
they didn't care, they didn't notice, and, and it's not their job to, but at the same time, you go to work to work with other people whom you enjoy working with. And I couldn't enjoy working with anybody. You know, I couldn't understand them and they couldn't understand me. Because it was, they start to forget. Oh, they and... forgot like within a week. And it, it, so it's not any, you know, they, they think you're not even thinking about it. It doesn't occur to them that you're thinking about it without stopping as you're doing everything. So you're just always an alien. You're an alien in this terrible, bleak landscape. It's, there's no good here. There's, it was terrible. It was really terrible. I mean, it was terrible after the three and a half years. It didn't right. stop. I've always had problems interacting at work because people don't begin to understand who you are or what you've done or what happened. And they just, it's not their fault, but they don't care. Yeah. They're too absorbed into their own world to really understand and, and truly empathize. But then you found Dr. Jordan. Tell us about that relationship. So I, I kept going back to him, as I said, and he did so many things for me. One is that he told me, keep on grieving. It's not wrong. And you're not crazy, which was my real worry was I thought I was, you know, certifiable because I was obsessed with all these dark, terrible, painful, horrific thoughts all the time. And I couldn't stop them. And he helped me be human, accept and understand that I was human. He helped that me imagine David in a safe place. And I imagined him in like a heaven-like place with my parents where they all live together. And in my mind, I gave him a motorcycle and I gave him a, a dog because I figured he needed a dog and a warm hat because I was always worried he was cold because this is the kind of crazy thinking you're having. I was terrified he was cold and I was terrified that he was lonely. Things that I've learned were meaningless, but at that point I, I, I clothed him in a safe, warm environment with love, with love around him. And that helped me find him in my mind because all of this time I was looking for him, looking for him. Where had he gone? He was there and then he wasn't there. And the worst part of grief is that absence that you will never, ever see that person again. You will never talk to them. You don't ever look in their eyes. You will never see that person again. And that pain is the real pain of grief. The person being gone, just gone never going to walk in the door, never going to say, hey, ma, and come in for dinner. And, um, but it helped imagine him so I could place him in a place in my mind. We went through many things in our therapy. And toward the end of it, I read, I read some very, very interesting books and I kind of like brought them with me to talk about them. One of them is books by Eben Alexander. He wrote Proof of Heaven, The Map of Heaven. And now he has a book about consciousness. I'm not, I don't remember. He was a neurosurgeon, he is a neurosurgeon. And he got um, bacterial meningitis and his brain died. Mm. And he was completely dead. Every monitor was, he was dead. He was just still on life support. And for a week, that was the case. And during that time, he went off to a heaven place. And then after a week from being brain dead, his brain started again, he came back to life and he was fine. Wow. He went back to work as a neurosurgeon after being dead. 
But during this period of being brain dead, he had all of these experiences very crystal clear in his mind, complete understanding and memory of everything that had happened during that time. And essentially he went off to heaven and he actually was with his long dead sister who he had never met. And that book blew my mind because what he, his argument is that when you are dead, when your brain is dead, your consciousness continues. That we think in America, <laughs> not in other cultures so much, but in America, the brain is linked to consciousness. And when the brain dies, the brain no longer functions, that means your consciousness is gone and who you are disappears, it's gone. And I think we think in America, like there's a soul and it's like this little spirit thing that like flits away from the body. And, but we don't have any personality, memory, consciousness attached to the soul. It's just a religious construct. But he talked about consciousness himself being alive and well, despite the fact that his brain was dead. And his brain wasn't dead, but was not functioning in any way. The second book that really, really changed my mind was a book called Evidence of the Afterlife by a guy named, um, oh, what is it, Jeffrey Long. And he's also written another book, God and the Afterlife, which was strange that I haven't read. But The Evidence of the Afterlife talks about all of the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of experiences around the world that people whose brains are dead have had after their brains are dead. People who have drowned and they've been dead for 30 minutes. There's no brain activity. He, they sorted through all of the data and found people who had only been clinically dead and had then come back to life, somehow been resuscitated. And all of those people have the same experience. There's like I don't know, a certain number of markers, but they all basically have the same experience. There's some sort of light, maybe there's a tunnel. They meet people who love them, relatives, not friends, strangely enough. They go into a place of utter love and brilliance and light and just surrounded and filled with love. And it's the most beautiful place imaginable and nobody wants to leave it. They're like, yeah, this is incredible. This and is they incredible. All have the commonalities, the descriptions are similar. Yeah, there were like 15 markers, and everybody, people had like nine out of 15 of the markers wow. of the same all around the world in all cultures. People wow. have the same experience, which I was like, oh, it's just some, you know, you know, mediums in, in America who, who make up this stuff. But this was scientific. He also is a, a physician and and a researcher. And he studies the research about after-death experiences. And that book just blew the top off my head because I was like, wait a second, maybe, maybe, maybe this is possible. I mean, with this guy, it's like a scientist. This guy is like studying all this research and saying people have an afterlife. And the consciousness continues despite the brain being dead. And that really switched my thinking around. And then I read a book by a guy named Alan Botkin, who found that he was doing EMDR. He's a psychologist in Chicago. He was doing EMDR with PTSD victims, uh, mostly vets. 
And he found that when he was doing that, that sometimes people would switch into suddenly a heaven-like place where they met the person whom they had caused the PTSD and they talked to them and they talked to them and they were like, hey, I'm perfectly fine. I'm in this incredible place. Stop grieving for me. Everything is great. You don't need to feel sad any longer about me. And they'd come back, they're like, hey, I just talked to, you know, my, you know, my combat buddy who died, or I talked to the girl I held in my arms, who died in my arms. And I, here I am, I, I met them, I talked to them. So he wrote this book, and he learned how to do it on purpose. He calls it induced after death experience. IADC. And instead of having the after-death experience like Long talks about and even Alexander talks about, he made it happen. He he sort of forced it to happen with an EMDR technique. What is EMDR? EMDR, oh gosh, you're asking me. It's a eye movement desensitization something. I don't sorry, I don't remember the last word. It's some sort of psychology term but it's eye movement and you can do it either with like a little buzzy thing in your palms of your hands. They do that. Sometimes people do it tapping on their body and you tap alternately or you see a um, object move in front of your eyes. So like and the hypnosis. Eye, it's not a hypnosis, but it sounds like it, but it's not. Yeah. Okay. What it does is that your eyes track back and forth or your body tracks from left to right, left to right, left to right. And in theory, it makes both sides of the brain, it activates both sides of the brain. And I guess we think mostly with one side of the brain at the time or something like this. I am not a scientist. And this makes both sides of the brain function together, which puts us into a sort of, it opens your unconscious. Got it. Somehow it opens your brain. And what what needs to happen to have an induced after death experience, you kind of like need to open your brain and just sort of allow in things that you would not normally allow in that we we are our logical mind cuts off and controls stop that's stupid that's illogical that makes no sense. So. I had this experience. I read this book by Botkin and I said to Jack, I said, do you know about this guy? And he's like, yeah, I've heard of him. And, but you know, he thought he was kind of crazy. So he went <laughs> and eventually and got trained by Alan Botkin in Chicago um, personally in this technique. And he came back. He didn't mention it to me for a while. And I was finally found out. I was like, you got trained and you didn't tell me. He said, but Botkin says it doesn't work with people who really want it to happen. I was like, I do not care. I've been looking everywhere for my child. I want to talk to my child. I need to connect to him and know that if he exists or not. So we did the technique and with five little going in and out of the EMDR experience, you know, I suddenly heard, hey ma, I'm right here. Wow. And I could hear my son very clearly in my mind. You know, I cried and cried and cried and cried and cried and cried. And he talked talked to me and told me all sorts of things I didn't know, answered my questions, told me about himself, and told me a lot of things I didn't understand. Like one of them being, he said, we are light beings, which I was like, okay, whatever, weirdo. (laughs) And he also said, know that you are God. And I was like, okay, now I really don't know 
what is going on here? But things, and then he told a, a joke uh, about a politician who he said if that he was alive during that politician's reign, he would have to kill himself. Oh boy. So, yeah. So I, uh, I knew it was David because David made the most outrageous jokes, irreverent jokes of every kind. There was no joke that was too far for David. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's David. <laughs> and so I went back to Jack. We did it maybe three or four more times. And each time I could hear J David clearly in my mind. And then I said to Jack, could I do this on my own? Do I, you know, like, do I need you holding a pen in front of my eyes? He's like, I don't know. And I'm like, I don't know. You know, neither of us know anything about this. You know, it's like a new thing for Jack. It's a brand new thing for me. I don't read any self-help books. I just read these three books I'm telling you about. So I went home and I tried to do it. First, I did it with a pen in front of my eyes. And then I learned that I didn't even need the pen. All I needed to do was to stop my own thinking. And I had to slow down my own thinking sort of in a meditative way. Yeah. And I learned that I could talk to David and I have been talking to David since 2017. And I can converse with him at any time. And he's right there. He's right next to me. He's right inside me. And I can talk to him at will and hear what he's saying to me. I mean, I, I said this on the Dr. Joe show, but, I'm, you know, he said to me one time, I was like, David, help me figure out what the right thing to say is. He's like, Ma, just let me talk. I'm a much better public speaker than you are. And, and, and he was an amazing public speaker, just like a gifted public speaker. And I was like, yeah, OK, that's true, kid. Um, so he's really funny. He's a, he's a so he's retained his personality. He's retained his consciousness. He is alive and well. And so are all the other people I dearly love. My parents, my grandparents, my parents in particular, I can, I can talk to. My mother's very reluctant to talk to me. She doesn't think it's appropriate. Um, she doesn't like kind of like woo-woo stuff. She, she's very, she's very religious. And um, I could talk to my father, talk to my grandfather who was dead in 1936. And I now can talk to people and I found out that they're all alive, that their bodies are dead, but they're all alive. And this is coming from someone who didn't believe in God, didn't believe in an afterlife. I didn't believe in anything. For me to say this is so bizarre and so unthinkable that I would say, I would talk about people in an afterlife. It, it's, not even a, it's not even possible that I'd be the person sitting here saying this, but I have learned the afterlife is real. Go ahead. What were you going to say? How has that helped you with your grieving? Well, essentially it doesn't completely eliminate it. Sometimes I see pictures of him and I'm filled with grief. And then he says to me, ma, you know, I'm alive. Yeah. Ma, you know it. We do, how, how many times do you have to go over this? You know, I'm alive. It takes away grief. Because now I'm right next to him. I'm right with him. I'm right with a kid who was like sort of, you know, he was in contempt of me being such a stupid mother and, you know, being wrong and misusing words. He was a real wordsmith. And now that's gone. He's just my beloved and with me. It takes away the grief because I 
now know that dead people aren't dead and they're right here. All you have to do is say their name and they're with you. And so when I'm, I'm a classical musician and when I sing and I'm singing a piece, like I know my dad would love, my dad loved Bach. And if I'm singing that, I'm like, oh, isn't this great? And I, I know he's like, yeah, this is incredible. This is great. I can share an experience, a, a life experience with dead people and know that they're hearing it and experiencing it with me. So I'm actually closer to my parents and I'm closer to David. So I'm always comforted by this other world, this other life. And so I'm halfway between this human life and this heaven life. I'm not even sure David used the word heaven in quotes because he says, I don't understand what heaven is. We think it's a bunch of clouds and angels sitting on them with harps, but he's like, it's not that at all. But he's like, we'll use the word heaven so that your brain can understand what we're talking about. And I am between both worlds. And the more I've talked to David, the more I've stepped into that world so that I can feel it now in the beginning for actually for a couple of years, I didn't really believe I was talking to David. I was so filled with disbelief that I was like, I'm just making this up. I'm just making this up out of my own grief. I'm just creating this. But then David would tell me these jokes and he would define words for me. And he'd tell me all of this information about God. He's really always talking about God that I don't know, that I didn't know anything about. And I'm like, this is new information to me. I don't, I can't make up new information. I can't create new information out of my known information. I must be hearing someone else. So as I began to trust it, I was the biggest skeptic ever. I mean, I was just ridiculously skeptical. And I now can live in both worlds and I can feel both worlds. So I have to, you have to do it again and again and again. And I've taught the technique to a bunch of other people and they've all had the same experience. People who don't really believe it think they're making it up. But the people who understand that there is an afterlife, really understand, like it's sort of really know there's an afterlife. They have this amazing ongoing relationship with their dead person. And it gets more and more amazing because you're talking to someone who's in a, an existence that we can't conceive of and is much more knowledgeable, much deeper, much fuller understanding of everything than we understand. So to the person who's listening to this, who's skeptical, but open to the concept, or maybe even feels as though they've opened their mind and had communications, how do you how do you explain to them how to really maximize this experience? You have to do it a lot. Yeah. You have to do it a lot. And as more and more as you do it, you start realizing you're truly, truly having a unique conversation, not something you are generating. And the person keeps telling you that they are their existence and how they are with you. I mean, there are other things that have helped me. I'm going to say that there are two other things that have helped me. One is an interaction with nature. And the natural world teaches you about everything, about the interconnectedness of everything, how we're, we're connected to the tree outside and we're connected to the flowers, we're connected to the grass. We're all, everything living is connected 
we're all like a big organism and we're like roses on a rose bush and they're they happen to be a tree and i happen to be a human being but we're all part of that same rose bush and we live and die our rose lives and dies but we're still always part of that rose bush even if we're dead we are we're still part of that rose bush um and in dogs are a big, 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 big part of it. Dogs teach you everything you need to know about how to live in the moment, how to appreciate everything, how to accept everything without judgment, how to believe without judgment, without your logical mind. Like dogs are so illogical. It's a perfect example of how to use your, your intuition. So you have, so, and that plays into my other thing, which is creativity and creativity I, I'm like just overflowing with creativity, but creativity teaches you about intuition and it teaches you to listen to your heart because you don't really, when you're creative, you don't think of it logically. You don't think of new ideas with logic. You think of new ideas like you wake up in the morning, you're like, hey, I'm going to make a chair out of uh, bittersweet branches today. And, you know, you don't know where that comes from. It's this inner intuitive knowing this inner making and seeing things in a new way that teaches you to open your mind to the unknown and it teaches you about intuition because most of this is all about your heart slash intuition slash subconscious it's all this knowing of the heart Instead of letting your logical mind say, I've got to do this, and this is what society expects, and this is what I was taught, and this is what would people think of me, and I'm going to be judged by all these other people, you got to cut out your logical mind. Your logical mind is just trying to keep you safe and trying to keep everything the same because they know the organism is safe right at this moment, and you don't want anything to change because your logical mind says, don't do anything injurious to this organism. However, your heart says something completely different. It says there's a deep inner knowing of the heart, and which is in creativity, which is in nature, which is in talking to dead people. This inner knowing of truth and new ideas. You have to open your mind, your heart, to completely new ideas that you never believed to be true. It's like everything I used to believe to be true is it turns out to be untrue. And everything I thought was untrue is true. So the brain is almost a, a, a filter that's that's blocking you it from is. this ability to do this. So it is. If someone the more is... logical you are, the less you will be able to talk to the dead. The more you believe in the logical mind, you just don't have a fighting chance of talking and to dead you, people. What do you say to those people, those logical people who say this is psychosis, this isn't... Yeah. This reality yeah people absolutely say that and will say that and i'm being very brave by saying you know out loud to lots yeah. of people that's not true i'm not even close to psychotic i'm not crazy i'm definitely eccentric i will make the hell out of brand new things like i make everything that you've never imagined axes and chairs and knives and bowls and mandalas and clothes and you know i make everything that you would never imagine logical mind it doesn't make me crazy it makes me artistic and creative i am so not crazy and i didn't believe it myself i would say you can stay in your logical mind you can want to stay there and believe that, it's, and it will. It'll keep you safe. However, 
it will keep you from the full human experience. And the full human experience is not what we do with our bodies. And, and we don't accumulate wealth. We don't you know, get the greatest clothes by a Lamborghini. Those are not the human experience. The human experience is this knowledge of ourselves as spiritual beings. We are spiritual beings who are clothed temporarily in flesh. The flesh is not really what, what this whole point is. It certainly experiences pain and it experiences wealth and hunger, but it's not what this human experience is about, is this body. And if you don't know that you're a spiritual being, you are literally completely misunderstanding what is happening here on earth. So one of the things that David has taught me, <laughs> I mean, he says things I don't like, like there is reincarnation, which I definitely didn't like. I was like, I want no part of that. I don't believe in that. But reincarnation is for people who haven't figured that out, who have come here and put all of their experience in this human body. And they did not understand what they were doing, their purpose in this experience, in this life. Your purpose is not to get a great Porsche. It is to understand you are a spiritual being. And there's access to that spirituality everywhere. Churches, mediums, you can do it yourself. I've done all of this myself. I've talked to like three people about it. I don't have like a big following of people who are like, oh yeah, yeah, we taught that to her. I figured it all out on my own. And then occasionally I'll read a book. And I'm like, hey, that's exactly like my experience. I've taught a few people to do it myself. And they have all had the same exact experience. It's, we are here as spiritual beings. And you got to figure that out. You, you got to stop your logical mind because it doesn't understand spirituality. It doesn't understand the soul. Huh. So if someone is listening to this and they've, they've, you know, this has been shared with them or, or they fell upon this, would you be willing to have a conversation with them to help them? Anybody, anytime, call me up. Either that or email me, Lassie Lad, L-A-S-S-Y-L-A-D-D at Gmail. Lassie. Anybody, Lassie Lad at Gmail. I welcome the opportunity to teach anybody. This is, I was in the depths of horror and now I have this life of joy. I'm not saying I don't still sometimes get depressed, and wrestle with bad feelings. I am extraordinarily human. I have a lot of physical pain, and but I don't have any emotional pain anymore. Depression seems to me to be different than emotional pain. It's just something that happens, it's awful. But um, I now know I am here. And I now know how to help other people know why, how they're here. And I know how to teach them how to talk to dead people. And wow. dead people will tell you everything. They'll tell you what matters. They'll they'll say, hey, it's not just about you. This is what's really going on. Rebecca, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing this. This is really, really impactful. And I think it's really going to touch some of our listeners. And I'm really grateful that you're willing to speak with those folks. And I'm super grateful that you're willing to share this because I know this must be very personal for a lot of people. I'm sure a lot of people will 
cast judgment. That mm-hmm. This is crazy talk. But mm-hmm. I appreciate you very much. And folks, if you're listening to this um, and you didn't catch that email address, we will make sure that it is in the show notes and reach out to Rebecca. She is a wonderful, enlightened, spiritual human being who can help you. Rebecca, thank you so very much. Mark, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm so grateful. Have an amazing rest of your physical being. (laughs) Thank you. You too. (laughs) Be well. Hey, thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice for a new episode each week and share this with everyone and anyone. If you have any questions or comments or have an idea for another guest, feel free to shoot me an email at mstyles at styles-law.com. That's M-S-T-I-L-E-S at styles-law.com. And if you are a real estate professional, be sure to check us out on our private exclusive Facebook page, The Real Estate School at 892 for content and Massachusetts continuing education opportunities. Be well, folks. Today's episode is sponsored by Securitidal. Title helps Massachusetts real estate attorneys, real estate agents, loan professionals, buyers, and sellers with all of their title, settlement, and escrow needs. Securitidal, S-E-C-U-R-I-T-I-T-L-E.com, where security and title come together. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or an endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Please seek legal, financial, or tax advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed herein.